Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Welcome back to Naughty Week on Connecticut Public, a week-long celebration of all things nautical. So when you meditate on the sights and sound of Long Island Sound and the Connecticut River, what comes to mind? Maybe coastal seagulls or herons, flounder and sea bass. But what about sturgeon? This species of fish is millions of years old, so wrap your mind around that. They're often described as hardy and charismatic. Researchers where we live have been tracking the two species of sturgeon off our coast, both listed as federally and locally endangered. While short-nosed sturgeon lived their lives and spawned in the Connecticut River, Atlantic sturgeon hadn't been seen spawning a river for years. That is, until recently. Two sturgeon researchers within the state join us now to discuss their discovery that Atlantic sturgeon are actually spawning upriver. Here with us is Jackie Benway. She's a biologist with the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection's Fisheries Division, and Tom Savoy, who founded the Sturgeon Monitoring Program in 1988 and who recently retired last year, but is kind enough to continue on as a volunteer and to join us this morning. Thank you, Jackie and Tom, for joining us. Oh, good morning. Thank you for having us. And for our listeners, if you're a Sturgeon fan or if you have any questions, please give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Tom, I want to start with you. Can you help us understand um, or start by describing sturgeon generally, you know, for our listeners who may not know what they look like and some of the important distinctions between short-nosed and Atlantic sturgeon? Well, um, sturgeon are very unique looking, and um, when you said that they've been around on the planet for a long time, that's correct. Uh, Some scientists say 60 million years, other people say as many as 200 million years. And so they have a a prehistoric look to them where they, instead of having scales like most fish, they have five rows of bony plates that we call scutes. Um, one on the top, two on the side, and two on the bottom. And they have a, um, a lot of primitive features, like they have a heterocircle tail, which most people would say, oh, it's a shark tail. Um, and then their, um, their mouth is on the bottom side of the fish instead of being on the end of the fish. And that's because they eat things on and in the bottom of the water. Um, they're usually brownish on the top and white on the underside so that if you're looking down in the water they blend in well with the background and if you're looking up the the white side um, blends in with the surface waters so uh, a very unique looking fish and it's a great question because we um, still to this day get a lot of people fishermen in particular saying hey you know I caught this what is it And sometimes those fish are are already um, expired, 
but um, if we can get the answer to them quick enough and say, hey, that's a, an endangered species, you need to release that without, without harm. And we are very excited to be having this conversation because you're totally right. It's so cool looking. And I must be honest, I've been spending basically the last couple of days on a Google nonstop deep dive of uh, of sturgeon pictures, and I'm just completely obsessed. And and Jackie, you know, with what Tom just said, you know, what would you add? What makes sturgeon so unique and so appealing to you? Um, they're so they're a, a long lived species. So it's one of the things that that's pretty amazing to me is I, I'm a few decades into my my career here at CT Deep. But um, we've literally handled the same fish like over decades of time. So the, these fish live a, a very long time. They, they are, you know, a hardy fish. Um, they undergo long migrations and, and they almost, um, in some regard, behave sometimes with some individual type patterns of movement. While they do tend to congregate and do things as a group. They also will um, undergo sorts of behaviors that are sort of individualistic, which is which is a pretty like interesting um, characteristic for for a fish species. And that makes me very much would love to know them on a personal level. And you know, Tom mentioned that you know they are very very old, but they're also very massive, right, Jackie? You know, how large would could they grow into? Um, it it goes by. So by species, but um, like let's say with the short-nosed sturgeon, which is actually considered the the smallest of the species, you know we've seen them uh, up to four feet in length. And then when we're talking about Atlantic sturgeon, um, those adults can get get quite large. You know, in the range of seven feet, there there have been that fish that large uh, captured in the Connecticut River. And for our listeners, you can see adorable pictures of sturgeon on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. And we are happy to be dedicating an hour to this very unique fish native to our shoreline. And Tom, we know you've dedicated much of your career to them, but they don't always get a lot of love or recognition. Is that something that you've experienced and have you found that to be true? Yes, that's true. Um, With the... um with those bony plates that we talked about, when the fish are small, the, those scutes are actually quite sharp and they have a little hook on them. If, uh, I think we forwarded a picture of, of a couple of young fish and you can see they look quite sharp. And so fishermen um, are not in favor of, of handling them, touching them or getting them out of nets. And, you know, historically, they would have been killed for those reasons. You know, fishermen would have said, "Ah, they're they're ripping up our nets, or they're they're cutting all our lines with those sharp scutes." So just you know, remove them from the water, throw them on the bank, whatever. Um, and so yeah, that has caused problems in the past. And Jackie, we know sturgeon have really long lifespans and are are generally pretty huge, as you described for us earlier. Can you tell us about how this is a factor in terms of how you monitor them? Um, so we we have interest in and um, researching all all sizes of the species, but we do um, 
depending on uh, where we're looking for them or what areas we're monitoring, we do use different types of gear to, to try to, to target different size ranges of fish. And so the, the gear types that we use primarily are um, gill nets and skiff trawls. And um, all of our activities are dictated by our Federal Endangered Species Permit, which sort of lists out all our options for the types of gear we can use. And then if we're looking for larger size fish, we'll um, pick a particular um, net mesh that, that is larger in size in hopes, it doesn't always pan out, but in hopes of capturing larger fish. And then conversely with smaller fish, you want netting um, of a smaller mesh size for hopes of better encounter. But of course there's a lot of other fish out there. So um, of other species that, that we also catch in our gear as well. And Tom, these fish are still federally and locally endangered. What makes them such a vulnerable population here? The, the fact that they are long live makes them susceptible to all those problems so that with like water pollution and, and chemicals and things like that, you go, well, you know, it's just a little bit each year. But the fact that it, they, they bioaccumulate those things and that they can live for 40, 50, 60 years um, they, they turn into toxic levels. We don't know that uh, all the eggs that they're producing or sperm they're producing is actually viable because of those kinds of things. And then just the occasional incidental loss so that, you know, a recreational fisherman or a commercial fisherman only kills one or two a year or one or one a month. And it's, because of their life history and their strategy, they're very susceptible to those losses. You wouldn't have to lose, you know, hundreds of fish, just those slow, steady losses of, of single individuals may be enough to tip the population to go extinct in some of the river systems that we have. And the fact that they're, uh, like with Atlantics, they're moving around in the ocean for decades and moving up and down the whole East Coast. And so they can go from a relatively safe area into an area where there's a lot of fishing activity or seismic activity, or we don't even know what this new stuff's going to happen with wind power. Um, but it's those kinds of things. So it's those st slow, steady losses over long periods of time that are causing problems. Well, and both of you have mentioned how how long these uh, sturgeons can live. So this means you've probably met the same sturgeon over decades, right, Tom? What's that been like? It, it it's um, pretty gratifying on a couple of levels, and so yeah, we've um, and and for the for people to understand, we're actually using pit tags, passive integrated transponder tags, which are the same type of things that people put into their pets now. So when you go to the veterinarian, he says, hey, I want to chip your pet so that we can identify that unique individual. And so we've been putting those into sturgeon, and that's how we can tell the same individual, because outwardly they look alike. We can't even tell the sexes apart. They, they look so close. But when we use um, the appropriate equipment, and get that tag number back, we can say, yeah, that's the same individual. That's how we can track growth. Um, we've seen some fish 
multiple times. The record now is uh, we've captured one individual nine times um, and, and over 30 years. And interestingly enough, when we first put those pit tags into those fish, they were already adults 25 to 30 years old. And here it is 30 years later. So it's, you know, um, we hire a lot of summer research assistants and oftentimes they say, well, this fish is a lot older than you. I can't imagine meeting the same fish. It just sounds like such a beautiful experience. And I'm glad that you mentioned the technology because that's something that we will most definitely get into a little bit more later in the hour. Um, and Jackie, I want to ask, you know, you were getting to this a little bit earlier. You know, do you have a harder time finding babies because of their long lives? Um, yes, it, absolutely. So, um, you know, we we don't have a, a good idea of um, the the number of of juvenile sturgeon that are produced in any given year. So, and they seem to um, mix in with other uh, life stages of sturgeon, and um, because they're they're quite small in size, they also maybe they also may be using habitats that that other fish, um, other sturgeon are not using. And so when we find them, it, it's, it's a very uh, gratifying but, but rare event. Um, we try to, as I referenced earlier, use different gear types to, to target smaller fish. But um, the way it goes with netting, the, the smaller the, the gear mesh, the more likely the gear is to become clogged with vegetation or fill up with, with other fish species that maybe you're not interested in, in at the moment. So um, we, we put in a, a lot of effort, but you can, there's almost not enough effort. You could just continually look for them and still have difficulties in finding them. But it's, it's definitely one of our uh, top priorities just to continue to, to document these younger fish um, in order to, to monitor the population health and successful, uh, you know, maintenance and growth of the stock. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of movement both above the water and beneath the water. Uh, Tom, I would love for you to take us back in time a little bit, maybe not as far back as the prehistoric times, but can you tell us a little bit about the program that you helped founded? Well, we, um, Right from the outset, we knew it was an endangered species. And so the, the state and the federal government are obligated to do whatever it takes to, to ensure the, the survival of that fish. And to back up one step, when, um, when you talk about the, the, the status, you could be a species of concern, you could be a threatened species, or they could be listed as an endangered species. And that's the sort of order that it goes. Species of, of concern, we would all have, you know, um, interest in, in saying, well, there's something going on here. It's not as good as it could be threatened. You know, it's, it's a little more dire. And endangered actually means that there's a likelihood or a possibility of them going extinct in the near future. So it's a pretty dire um category to be in. And when I first started doing this in the, in the late 80s, 
we had no idea how many sturgeon were here, um, where they were moving around, when they were doing things. Um, we actually have three river systems in the state, three major rivers, the Connecticut, the Housatonic, and the Thames. And it's, are there populations in each river? Um, do they, do they mix? You know, so there was a, there was a lot of questions that we needed some really basic answers for. Sturgeon researchers Jackie Benway and Tom Savoy will be staying with us. Coming up, we'll zero in on a very important discovery that Tom made where these sturgeons are spawning. And have you seen a sturgeon in Long Island Sound? Let us know if you have. Join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're spotlighting sturgeon, a hardy and sometimes huge fish that hangs around where we live. Back with us now to discuss their sturgeon-focused research is Jackie Benway. She's a biologist with the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection's Fisheries Division, and Tom Savoy, who helped found the Sturgeon Monitoring Program in 1988. And for our listeners, if you've seen a sturgeon or if you have a question about them, you can give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Tom, we had talked a little bit about the important differences between the two Connecticut species of sturgeon, short-nosed and the Atlantic, which led to a very remarkable discovery about Atlantic sturgeon almost uh, about a decade ago. Can you tell us about that? Well, we had um, we had been seeing visiting Atlantic sturgeon um, for for quite a few years, and uh, they were usually uh, what we call um, sub-adults and, and large juveniles. So they were in that size range of 30 inches to, um, to, to as big as five, six feet. And um, so we know that there were Atlantic sturgeon in all of the major East Coast rivers historically. But... Um, in the in the late 80s and early 90s there wasn't a lot of sturgeon research going on and and so we thought that there was only 
a handful of rivers where they were still um, spawning and, and, and doing well. And one of those was the Hudson River, our, our closest neighbor to the west. And so we had been sampling fish and collecting tissue samples, genetic tissue samples. And when we had those samples analyzed, lo and behold, about 70% of the fish were from the Hudson River. But we seen had seen visitors from all up and down the East Coast. And so it, it was just always one of those hopes that, you know, there might be a few Connecticut River Atlantic sturgeon left someplace out there. And we were sampling short-nosed sturgeon with, um, with a skiff trawl, and we actually caught, um, started catching a few small Atlantics. And, and by small, they were around six inches. And that is too small from, for them to have migrated out of any other river system. So we also took a, a genetic sample from those fish. We wound up catching about 50 of them in 2014. And when we were able to have those genetically analyzed, they were unique from every other known stock on the East Coast of the United States. And so that was our, our revelation of the, of the decade that some fish had spawned in the Connecticut River. Um, and that, I mean, that sounds like a, a really amazing discovery. And, and Jackie, what would you add about this discovery? And can you talk about its uh, significance? Um, so it, it sort of put, put to rest the, the thought that, um, you know, as Tom had referenced, that, that there was a complete extirpation of a, of a stock here in in Connecticut, um, so historically, just the impacts of fisheries and stuff, and with the vulnerability of sturgeon not being annual spawners, um, that sort of complicates things when you're trying to look for these smaller fish, knowing that there that fish don't spawn on an annual basis. So we had we had hoped that. Um, you know, with seeing all all these Atlantic sturgeon utilizing the lower Connecticut River, we knew that the habitat here um, still held a lot of value to these fish in, in terms of, of feeding and growth and development. And and so we were hopeful that that would in, in turn, um, it would have, a, you know, a, a benefit in that we would continue to contribute to, to the stocks, uh, not only locally, but, but coastwide. So yeah, it was a, it was a really um, exciting and fulfilling um, discovery. Well, we're excited to hear about that discovery here on Where We Live. And for our listeners, just a reminder that you can see the image of the hatchling sturgeon that was found in 2014 on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. And we'll get to some of the history and the extirpation of sturgeon later in the hour. But in general, Tom, how widespread are these two kinds of sturgeon in Long Island Sound and the Connecticut River? And what's the likelihood of a swimmer um, run into a sturgeon they're they're um w- all right so with short nose 
they utilize the Connecticut River and can be found throughout the river. There's even a landlocked population above the Holyoke Dam. So there's a small group up there. But um, but the short nose and utilize the entire river from the mouth up to uh, up to Massachusetts line. Um, and you can see them on occasion, but they're a pretty wary fish. Uh, the, the cool thing is that you can see them breach or jump out of the water. And that's always been one of the more fascinating aspects for me. Um, and having been fortunate enough to do this, seen hundreds, if not thousands of breaches. But it's one of those things where sometimes there'll be three or four of us on the boat. And I'll say, you know, did you see that? And, and if somebody's not looking in the exact right direction, it all happens so quickly. All they see is the either the splash or the footprint in the water. And it's like, I don't know what you're talking about. So we've had people work for us for six months and go, these fish don't jump. I don't know what you're talking about. But you're, if you're in the right place at the right time, you can see breaches. Sometimes there's dozens of them going on. Um, that was actually one of the, the um, reasons we got into Atlantic sturgeon research was the director of fisheries at the time said, hey, go down and find out what's going on off the mouth of the Connecticut River. We're getting all these reports of fish jumping out of the water. And, and some of them are crazy. You know, people are saying barracuda are jumping out of the water. And we pretty much knew it wasn't barracuda. But um, when we did go down there, there was a lot of Atlantic sturgeon breaching. And so there's actually a few of them on the Internet. People can, can uh, look for it. Uh, we posted one on, on our, um, our web page, and it's pretty cool to see. Uh, and then you can go into different areas, and if the fish are five, six, seven feet long, to see that jump out of the water is, is pretty impressive. So uh, something that, that we um, urge people to report. We are interested in incidental captures, uh, reports of jumping, and especially interested in carcasses. So we are actually listed on a separate federal re um, permit to collect those specimens. And then we try to get as much information as we can off of them. Well, knowing my luck, I'd probably be one of those people that would only see a splash and be very upset and, and think that they're just magical beings and they don't exist, Tom. So I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and if you found a barracuda, we will have a very different conversation right now. And, and Jackie, with what Tom just just uh, shared, I mean, everything sounds so cool. You know, are there are there particular places that they congregate or does that change? Um, it, it definitely changes, uh, but during um, summer months, there it, there's a, a fair amount of, of activity, including breaching activity in the lower Connecticut River um, from the mouth of the river, like Tom referenced, um, you know, up into probably into Deep River and e even into Haddam. So, um like Tom had mentioned, we do get reports where the public will report breaches. So if you're kayaking, if you're shore fishing, um, if you're out on your boat and, and you're, um, you know, sort of attentive of your surroundings, you know, and looking at the waterline, uh, you, you might, yeah, you might 
get the treat of seeing like a, a, a surgeon breach. And I know we touched on the differences between short-nosed and Atlantic sturgeon, but can you talk about, are there other important differences between the two species? The, the biggest difference is their, their, um, their size. So uh, a full-grown adult short-nosed sturgeon is going to be right around 3 feet, 39 inches. Uh, we have seen a few as big as 42 inches, but that's may even be a record on the East Coast. Um, whereas Atlantic sturgeon, we don't think that they are sexually mature until they get to be at least five or six feet long and they can grow very large. And so one of the difficulties with talking about that aspect is that you have to remember the history and say, well, most of the stocks were extirpated. You know, what's left is are just remnants. They're still having all these problems up and down the East Coast. And so the oldest fish that has been aged was 60. And I think one of the largest fish collected was about 14 feet. But these are the these are what's left now. So how large could they get and how old could they get remain unknown questions. Um, but I, we do have a researcher in Canada who says that he's seen sturgeon larger than the 20-foot boat that he's in. And, you know, we, we frequently give him a hard time, but, but I believe that there probably are fish that large out there. And so... Fish that large are probably a hundred plus years old, um, and it just it, it remains an open question: How large can they get, and how long can they live? Well, clearly, we're going to have to do a follow-up show to answer those questions at some point. And I'm having a hard time imagining a you know a fish twenty feet long. So it's probably a good thing that you gave them a hard time on that. <laughs> and and Jackie, with that too, you know, anything you want to add? Um, so, uh, the, with the short nose sturgeon, I, I would just add, um, I, based on the number of fish we've captured over the years and, and sort of tracking and recapturing the same fish that, that those fish, um, we, we believe that we do have some of like the largest of, of the short nose species, um, for some of the, compared to some of the other stocks on the East Coast, like we'll sort of have, um, you know, casual conversations with other scientists um, at meetings. And um, oftentimes they're, they're somewhat surprised that uh, we have these like hefty, robust and large short-nosed sturgeon. But, um, you know, we take it as a badge of honor that, um, you know, there's, there's a, a healthy, uh, you know, food source here and that, um, you know, and until now, the ecosystem and the Connecticut River habitat ha have been good to these fish in order for them to grow and, and thrive and, and be so um, rotund and healthy. 
Rotund is such a great description for a fish, I want to say. And uh, Tom, I know you mentioned earlier uh, technology that you use to to tag the the sturgeon. So we know you use uh, acoustic telemetry to keep track. Can you explain what that is exactly? That's a, a fascinating technology that's been developing and getting better all the time. Where and there's there's different kinds of transmitters. Um, some people would be more familiar with radio transmitters, and they use those a lot with um, with animals. Uh, like in Connecticut, we've tagged moose, we've tagged bobcat, um, different things like that, they, and bats. Uh, the technology has evolved to the point where the transmitters can be so small that they can put them on tiny birds, and then the birds can be tracked as they migrate up and down the United States. Um, and so with fish, the radio transmitter signal doesn't propagate through the water well. So we use acoustic transmitters, which produce an electronic signal. Um, and then how far that signal will travel depends on how much stuff is in the water and that's kind of you know a non-technical but like with highly turbid systems like if you looked at the connecticut river in the last couple of weeks it was a muddy brown well that's carrying all that sediment and silt load and so then those acoustic transmitters that we have out there might have only been transmitting and pulsing you know 50 feet or 100 feet um in a normal situation we might get a half a mile uh, listening range. And so when we first started this uh, years ago, we would, after putting the transmitters in a fish, we surgically implant them, you would have to go out with a hydrophone and listen. And uh, it would take three days to cover the, the Connecticut River within the Connecticut portion to find out where our tagged fish were. So as technology has, has improved over the years, we now can put receivers in the water and they can stay there for 12 months and then whenever a transmitter gets within listening range it records the unique number and a time date stamp down to the microsecond and so then we can go back out usually monthly and download those receivers and find out what fish were in that area. You've been listening to Sturgeon researchers Tom Savoy and Jackie Benway, who will be sticking around. Coming up, we'll hear from the Marine Time Aquarium about a new touch tank dedicated to these prehistoric fish. Sturgeon fans, give us a call, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour is all about sturgeon, a prehistoric and largely endangered fish species that's just off our coast. The Maritime Aquarium in Norwalk recently opened a touch tank where you can meet these fish. Joining us now to discuss is Tom Naiman. He's a vice president of education at the Maritime Aquarium. Thank you so much, Tom, for joining us today. 
Hi, Catherine. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, I'm so happy to be able to talk about our most exciting new exhibit, which opened um, just over two weeks ago. And I'm a subscriber to Where We Live and a loyal listener. Right, ahead, so it's Tom. really exciting to. to um, it's well, we're very excited for you to be here, and we're very excited that you're excited. And another exciting thing is still with us are our Sturgeon researchers with the state, Jackie Benway and Tom Savoy. CTPublic.org. And Tom, we have two Toms right now, so it could get a little confusing. So specifically, Tom with the Maritime Aquarium, we'll right. start with you. Thank you so much. Can you tell us right. about okay. this touch tank? Sure. Um, it's, uh, as far as we know, um, uh, one of three or four uh, sturgeon touch tanks um, at uh, uh, zoos and aquariums in the United States. Um, it's 33 feet long, uh, ranges from six to 12 feet across. Uh, we will at any uh, given point in time have nine or 10 uh, sturgeon in it, Atlantic sturgeon. And we really pride ourselves at the Maritime Aquarium on creating intimate, up-close experiences between our guests and the animals in our care. And um, sturgeon are such fascinating, um, unknown, um, uh, local animals and, and important, uh, endangered as we've heard. And so to be able to uh, give people the opportunity to see them up close, to touch them with their own hands, um, is really just a, a remarkable opportunity. And as we just heard from, from Jackie and Tom, um, there's a real uh, conservation and research uh, reason to make them better known. Um, most of our guests do not know that they're found in Connecticut. They don't know what they are. And um, so we can uh, build that awareness, build that sense of empathy, and if people see a sturgeon breaching, if they see a sturgeon washed up, washed up on a beach, uh, they'll know what it is and they'll be able to report its presence. And how would you distinguish lake sturgeon from Atlantic sturgeon? Well, I would actually uh, defer to our earlier guests um, on a question like that. Um, as we've heard, the Atlantic sturgeon um, are quite large. Um, uh, we actually have a mural in the exhibit um, that uh, has a 14-foot uh, sturgeon. So while the sturgeon in our tank range from about three to four feet, um, you can stand next to an image of a 14-foot sturgeon and um, and uh, and and get a sense of that scale. Um, we heard about some of the differences between short-nosed and uh, Atlantic sturgeon. The sturgeon are also found in the Great Lakes. Um, there are actually uh, close to 30 species of sturgeon worldwide. Um, they're often described as prehistoric. Um, and as we heard uh, from Jackie and Tom, sturgeon have been on Earth for uh, certainly since the age of the dinosaurs. Um, we try not to use the term living fossils because they have undergone um, dramatic uh, evolution and radiation uh, since those um, since those ancestral sturgeon producing the close to 30 species that we see today. Maybe living history might be a, a better phrase there. And and honestly, when I think about touch tank, I don't immediately think about sturgeon. And so I think the idea is so 
it's so fun. And so how would you describe what they feel like? Are they shell-like, like a horseshoe crab, or are they fleshy like a ray, or somewhere in between, considering the scales? Well, I, I think I would say that they have a, a smooth sort of leathery feel. Um, uh, they they don't have that uh, that slippery uh, coat that that many fish that people are familiar with have. Um, they have a, a sort of alligator or alligator gar like appearance. Um, uh, but, but they're, they're, they're quite smooth. And, and as I said, I would, I would describe them as leathery. And Jackie, I want to bring you back to the conversation. You know, how would you, um, describe the feel of a sturgeon? Um, so it, it, it's sort of interesting. It, it, um, sometimes how their um, skin feels, it, it reflects um, where they are in their life history. So um, earlier Tom had referenced like young fish, uh, which have the, the bony plates or scutes, as we discussed. And in younger years, those, those have a sharpness or a hook to them. Um, and the skin of the, the sturgeon will, will be um, rough. And with time, when we, we capture fish that we know are, are decades old, um, in appearance, you can see the, these skews have become more rounded, you know, from their decades of living in the waters. And then also their skin in turn um, can be like more smooth and, and, and a little more like slippery or, or slimy to say. As, as they sort of get older and sort of their bodies have, have more wear from, from life in the Connecticut River. And Tom Savoy, our sturgeon researcher, can you clarify how lake sturgeon factor here? Um, there, there are seven different sturgeon species uh, in the United States. Um, oh, and actually, you know, when, when uh, Tom said that there's 30 species in the world. That's true. And interestingly, they're all only found in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, so each species is doing something unique or living in a different habitat. So the lake sturgeon are living in the large bodies of fresh water within our country, within the United States and Canada. And then they're have a, um, almost an anadromous habitat habit where they run up into the rivers to spawn. And um, they are sort of intermediate in size between short nose and Atlantic. So large lake sturgeon can be six, seven, maybe eight feet, um, up, up to a couple hundred pounds. Um, and they look just a little bit different. But if you were to, to put, you know, all um, seven sturgeon species in, in the one picture, it, it would probably be some fine distinctions between some of them. And uh, Tom with the Maritime Museum, what has the reaction been like so far in terms of the touch tanks? Now, these are prehistoric fish, as you mentioned. I'm imagining the kids must love seeing them up close. Oh, it, it's just a remarkable experience. Um they are they are so uh, wonderful and and strange looking. Um, 
some people are a little bit hesitant at first. Um, we do inform them that surgeons don't have teeth, um, so they don't have to worry about being bitten. And the the delight on people's faces is is just um, really incredible. Um, we have a number of touch tanks at the aquarium, so uh, on a single visit, you can touch moon jellies. Um, you can touch rays, you can touch uh, spider crabs, um, and this is just a, a wonderful addition. Um, they're so charismatic, um, and um, and it's it's an amazing opportunity for people. Um, I, I should mention that um, now, as part of the Connecticut Free Museum Program, um, all children in Connecticut, along with an adult caregiver receive free admission to the aquarium through Labor Day. So this is an opportunity that is uh, available to every Connecticut resident uh, for no cost uh, through Labor Day. And, and it's I, I would encourage everybody to, to come and, and visit us and, and have this experience. Um, incidentally, uh, our sturgeon originally came to us in 2012 and 2015 through a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service program. Uh, they were part of a study and uh, were not able to be released into the wild. So um, they're about 10 years old and um, we've seen them grow from, from less than a foot to their current size of three to four feet. And um they're they're just adorable um when they were much smaller i used to tell our guests that um if you've never thought that a fish could be cute you have to look at a at a young sturgeon and in fact i i saw that there's a, a picture of a very small one uh, a young fish on your website so i'd encourage everybody to go and take a look and then to come and and have the opportunity um to see and touch a sturgeon up close at the Maritime Aquarium. Yes, we have been doing a lot of fan fishing over over the young sturgeon, and I, I smiled very, very widely earlier when you described that the sturgeon didn't have teeth. I did not think of that, so that was a very nice image that you gave me. Thank you very much for it. And uh, Tom Savoy, our sturgeon researcher here in Connecticut, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about the history of these fish and their dif disappearance as well. That's where we talked about the, the, the problems being long lives um, and, uh, and, and suffering, you know, incremental losses. Uh, Jackie mentioned that they don't spawn annually. Uh, with some of the some of the sturgeon, it might only be every three to five years that the, the females produce eggs. It, it takes that long for the uh, eggs to mature inside the body to be ready to spawn. And then the, the 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 classic known history that most people will talk about is that is caviar, and so that the caviar fisheries are are probably the single biggest problem that sturgeon face worldwide. Um, to, to harvest the caviar, they, they kill the fish. Um, it's only been in the last 10 years that aquaculture is coming up with techniques where they can remove the eggs and, and sew the fish back up and, and, and she survives to, to produce additional caviar in the future. But, um, you know, worldwide, particularly, uh, 
in Russia and in the um, some of the Eastern European countries. Uh, some of those sturgeon species are probably extinct or right on the edge because those uh, those fish can just be so valuable. Uh, beluga sturgeon um, is considered the ultimate caviar, and so that fish can be worth tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to people. And it's easy for us to say, you know, they, they shouldn't be harvesting that. They, you know, they need to save it for, for posterity. But when the fishermen are living on $100 a year and you get a, a fish that's worth $10,000, it's, it's hard to, to release them from the net and let them go. So, um, and with what's going on there, um, what sorts of regulations are in place to protect sturgeon in the Sound and the Connecticut River? They are federally endangered. That means that you cannot take them. You cannot say you're fishing for them. And the, the federal definition of take is pretty all-inclusive. Uh, now, this you have to remember, this is... Um, applies to endangered and threatened species. And so, like in the case of whales, you can actually be too close to a whale with your boat. And if, if in a uh, enforcement person's view, you're altering their behavior, that's considered a take. And Tom, so I want to take a moment to... If you're driving around and you're scaring fish, moving them away from where they want to be, that's a take. And so you can be subject to fines. You could have your equipment confiscated. Uh, it, it can be quite drastic. And Tom, I just want to take a quick moment to congratulate again on your retirement. And we got about 30 seconds left, but do you have any final thoughts here about these very unique creatures? Uh, we just think that, yeah, they are, um, they are fascinating. Uh, I would also encourage people to take a ride down there. I'll, I'll probably make a trip down to the Maritime <laughs> Center myself. Um, it's a, a unique opportunity. Uh, very few people know they're here in the state. And yes, there are two species, and, and we hope that, that they do persist. Uh, thank, it, thank you so much. That they could be lost in our lifetimes. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience, Tom Amen, Vice President of Education at the Maritime Aquarium. Thank you for your time. And with Deep, Tom Zavoy, thank you so much for joining us, as well as Jackie Benway. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, don't forget to join us for Naughty Week. Check check out ctpublic.org slash where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Download where we live anytime. And thank you so much for listening.